Welcome to another episode of Breaking Into Cybersecurity, CISO Thursday, 1 p.m. live Eastern. If you're joining us on YouTube, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and then the notification button right below so that you're notified when we next come on live. If you're joining us on LinkedIn, as you can see, I am not Renee coming live on her stream though. Um, so we'll be, we have um, an amazing CISO on today, Jarek. Uh, I saw him organize a SANS leadership event and uh, some of his thoughts and ideas, as well as following him on LinkedIn. I just, we had to connect. We had we had so many things in common. I, I wanted to bring him on. It took a little bit, but we finally got him on. Um, you want to introduce yourself to the audience and give a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. Uh, Jared Beeson, I'm the CISO at Epic. I've uh, been here for a little over a year and a half now. Uh, my career has been varied from experiences. I worked for the government for a little while at Lockheed Martin, protecting the nation's nuclear secrets. I led professional services at RSA. I worked for a management consulting firm and worked my way up to one level under partner. Um, pretty much done it all. I've worked for Fortune 200 as a deputy CISO, and now I'm a CISO at a, at a startup. My entire career has been in cybersecurity bachelor's and master's in security, got all the papers and degrees and certs that people seem to care about. And uh, yeah, this is a little bit about me. Wow. Well, first of all, I think let, let's talk through the differences between a deputy CISO, their responsibilities and the CISO, because I think for those that might be rising, looking to rise in the ranks, they might not understand uh, where the differences lay and potentially how they can use that as a stepping stone in their career. Yeah, so there's a few ways you can look at deputy CISO. Uh, one, you can look at yourself as a CISO in training and the, the right-hand man or woman uh, to the CISO. Uh, you can look at yourself as uh, the person that is there if the proverbial bus hits the CISO. Uh, mm -hmm. You are the one in line for succession. Uh, but ultimately, uh, deputy CISO roles vary by organization. Sometimes they lead the BISO organization. Um, sometimes they are overall strategy and projects. There really is no clear cut definition except for the fact that you are number two in security in the organization. Well, you mentioned the BISO role, and that seems to be a role that I'm seeing pop up a lot more in the job listings today. How is that different? How is the BISO different from a CISO, and how can they help with the security strategy in an organization? Yeah, so as security becomes uh, more decentralized, we pushed out security to the businesses. Just like IT, most IT departments and large organizations have developers and IT people. So it only makes sense that you have security personnel within those business units as well. And ultimately, the BSO's role is to be intimately aware and in the weeds at the very deepest levels within the business units that they're assigned to. Sometimes it's by region, sometimes it's by business unit, sometimes it's by division. It just depends on, on the organization. Sometimes it's by product, right? It just depends on the organization. But ultimately, you are the eyes and the ears for the central portion of the security organization. You are going to be the first person that anyone in the business goes to if they need security advice, if they need a security review. Uh, you will be the one helping them prioritize the risks. You will be the one that intimately knows the strategy for that individual business unit and will align the security organization with that. Uh, you will be the one that fights for the support and uh, the, the funding, whatever it may be, so that business unit can be properly secured. Uh, CISOs um, can do this, but for CISOs to do this at scale, they need a lieutenant. And in many cases, the BISO serves as that. And do you think that a BISO would be a more interesting path for those that don't have the technical background? Like they, they understand the people in process, they understand some of the technology, but they're not hands in deep on the JSON scripts. It depends on how the BISO role is structured, what level of authority the BISO role is given. In some cases, the, the BISO role can be, you know, the head of governance, risk, and compliance for a business unit. Um, in some cases, it could be the head of security architecture for a business unit. So I don't know that there's a clear-cut path, and that's pretty much going to be the case across all of security. What people don't realize is we're still a fairly new industry. Even though we've been around for years, 
when you compare it to finance and you compare it to IT, you compare it to all the other uh, functions that run a business, security is still uh, in its nebulous state. And we're trying to figure things out. There really is no one right way. So I, I don't know that I can give an absolute response, uh, but there are definitely scenarios where the BSO as it's structured can be a, a non-technical person and they serve as a liaison between security and the business and they help make good decisions for the business from a security perspective. Okay. So like you, you mentioned there's no clear cut path. What, what are some of the potential things that you're doing to grow your security pipeline and grow, say, someone coming in at a junior level that wants to be a CISO to experience some of the different things that they need to be successful while growing towards that path? So when it comes to helping someone get to CISO, I'm probably not going to have a conversation with someone entry level about getting to CISO because there are multiple steps in between there and there is no once again clear cut path uh, to, to CISO. That being said, I'm going to get people opportunities to grow. Ultimately, you don't become the head of any business unit, the head of any function, if you haven't grown into it. You're not just giving it because you have certain years of experience. You need a diversity of experiences, number one. Um, you need progressing levels of responsibility, uh, number two. And you need to intimately understand how a business operates. You need to understand the finances. You need to understand what profit and margin you need to understand EBITDA. You need to be able to understand hiring. You need to understand strategy, marketing, communications. There are a number of factors uh, that go into becoming a CISO. Uh, but some of the things that I'm doing to develop my talent pool is I'm giving people stretch, stretch roles. People operate uh, in their strengths, but then I give them opportunities to do things that they've never done before. If you don't do something out of the box, you won't grow because you're going to stay in that box. So it's my job to place people in positions and opportunities to get better and to experience new things. And quite frankly, to fail. I think we learn more from failure than we do from our successes. And, but it's also my job to protect them and to cover them when they fail, to take the credit um, for the failure and to pass on the credit um, for, for the successes. And it really just starts with having a conversation. Hey, what part of security interests you? Why did you want to be in security? You know, are you the geeky type or are you the policy type? Um, I ask some of these types of questions. I also look for non-traditional candidates as well. There are so many skill sets that are needed to be a good security practitioner. And there are people that bring those skill sets without having any security background. I need someone with a mind that is always asking why. I need someone that has a thirst and a hunger for knowledge. I need someone that can think on their toes, someone that can dig through data and find that proverbial needle in a haystack, one worst case scenario, a needle amongst needles. Um, the, the whole idea of security is I think literally anybody could do it. It's just a matter of finding the sweet spot based off of people's skills, background, uh, as well as personality types. Okay. And with regards to kind of finding that skill background and personality types. Um, I, I love your approach, finding diverse candidates with diverse experiences and kind of having them do things that they haven't done, like talk to executives or uh, do security awareness conversations when they might be more technical so that they get out of their shell. What, what are some of the things that you, you might do for, say, someone in finance that's interested in security, like how would they transition over and how, how would you help them highlight the, the competencies that they have that really trans, translate over? All right, so small example, if someone from finance wants to get into security, I don't think anybody can do security without understanding the fundamentals of IT, right? So I wanna understand what they know about the fundamentals of IT. Let's, ex let's assume they were in school for MIS and they know the basics of IT, they just ended up in a career in finance. The first question I'm gonna ask them is, if you were a hacker, how would you hack the financial systems that you manage and operate? How would you get in? And I wanna see how their brain works, right? I wanna see, can they say, well, you know what? I'm able to log in here. I wonder if someone else can log in this way or nothing has ever stopped me from downloading data. I wonder if someone else could download data or the, I, I could change this information, but I shouldn't have access to it. I wonder if that should be, 
if we could do something about that, right? I want to see how their brain works because ultimately I hire people for their potential, not for their experience. And if they can say, here are 10 ways that I would break this system or that I would hack this system, that shows me that they have a security mind. And then I just have to foster that and give them some of the technical acumen and some of the training and some of the tools to then parlay what they're already thinking, the way their mind works into something that is tangible, leveraging what we already have. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm of the mindset that cybersecurity is really an industry that anyone can join, whether they're coming from construction um, to coming from the military, like individuals that are doing logistics. I've, I've talked to some individuals that, oh, they've been doing logistics. I'm like, perfect. Have you considered supply chain risks and cybersecurity? I mean, your ability to trace down um, where something came from, who touched it all along the path and um, how it could be vulnerable, that that's something critical in today's supply chain. Uh, it absolutely is. And I like that you talked about the supply chain. Going back to BISO, right? Um, the person that understands the business the best has the best chance of securing the business. So talk about people changing career paths. Well, if you are deeply involved in operations or whatever aspect of a certain business unit, you were probably more equipped with the foundational knowledge of the business than any person that I would go and assign, right? So I'm either have to teach the security person the business side or I teach the business person the security side. Either way, there's an opportunity for a really good marriage. Um, supply chain is also a good one because they're going to have more knowledge of the suppliers in our environment. Supply chain risk is first identifying the suppliers, two, identifying the risk of those suppliers, and then three, finding a way to manage that risk. And the first step is where we usually fail. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've seen organizations that because they're so large and they have so many large suppliers, they tend to only focus on the, the quote unquote critical ones. And then there's these medium and smaller ones that have potentially the same access. And if that access really isn't tailored properly, have exposure to the whole environment, but they're not looked at because they might only be used for one thing. So they're considered a small risk or a small supplier. Absolutely. Um, it only takes one, it only takes one door that they have to walk, walk through. And then the irony is we all focus on the large suppliers we're literally all asking the same supplier the same questions. It's the smaller ones, it's the mom and pop shops that have smaller security teams. They're the ones that need the most attention, but they're considered the smallest. So in many cases, they get the least amount of attention. Um, and I think that's, I think we have it wrong when it when it comes to that. Um, and that's just kind of the, the status quo of how things have been done. I personally treat the supply chain a little bit differently. I, I ask the questions in the questionnaires because I have to. It's just table stakes, it's the way we do things. It's part of your compliance programs. But I'm more interested in how I can make sure that that supplier's bad day doesn't become my bad day. Every supplier is going to have a bad day. Every company is going to have a compromise at some point in time, big or small. You know, Law4j is a good example of that. But what am I doing to make sure when they have a compromise, it does not negatively impact my organization? That is what I'm constantly focused on when it comes to supply chain. That is the risk that I need to focus on, not the questionnaire that asks, can you be compromised? Because the truth is, of course they can. And if I think anything other, other than that, you know, it's really kind of asinine. So I have a dose of reality and I've told my teams that, hey, we're going to ask these questions because we want to know who's more likely to be compromised. But ultimately, when it happens, because it will happen, what do we do? How do we respond quickly? Um, and how do we make sure that we mitigate that thing as quick as possible? One of the things I was thinking about is um, CMMC being in the DC space. I hear a lot about it. Um, whether you're pro or against it, I mean, I, I think taking a maturity model approach is a great idea. Like you said, table stakes um, for the small suppliers, like you set what you consider table stakes for them. But as you grow in criticality in your organization, trying to ensure that there's some sort of maturity around their security program is helpful. Um, have you have you considered implementing something like that or maybe have um, in your past? Um, 
So I think I told you I, I did government work in the past, and I never want to go back to it. Government work <laughs> in many ways was uh, paper security, mm-hmm. and CNMC is paper security in a lot of different ways. Uh, I like what the in, what's intent was, right? The intent was that we need to level up all of our suppliers. Like I was saying, your supplier could be the reason for your bad day, not anything that you've done yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so coming up with the tiers, you know, CNMC, one, two, three, and so forth, I, I like where we were going with that. Um, the problem is a few things. Number one, self-attestation doesn't work. And I don't think it's because of integrity. I think people just really don't know how bad they are or how good they are. Um, yeah. And they misrepresent it um, intentionally or unintentionally. Um, but then having people come in and assess doesn't always work either because they're really assessing a point in time. Anyone that's been through an audit knows the audit scramble. The auditor is coming in two weeks. We need to do all of these things before they get here. We will spend every resource. We will forego projects. We will make sure that that audit comes out clean. And then as soon as the auditor leaves, back to usual, back to normal. Patching doesn't happen as efficiently as it was happening in the past. Accounts aren't being reviewed as much as they were being reviewed in the past. Certain exceptions are given that you know may not have been given otherwise. So I think the point in time nature of a lot of these frameworks are, are why they're not effective um, to me. Um, and then the, the other aspect of that is when you give people a framework, those are the bounds that they operate within. And I've yet to see a framework that requires EDR. They still require antivirus, right? So if I'm in pursuit of compliance, I'm gonna give up security so that I can check that box. But if I just focus on security fundamentals, the things that are known to prevent attacks, the things that are known to mitigate attacks, um, the things that are known to reduce the likelihood of an attack, I'm gonna check off most of the compliance boxes anyways, but I'm going to be more secure. I'm going to have enough people to respond to a crazy event like Log4j. Most of these frameworks don't even tell you that you have to have enough people to be able to respond, right? They don't say that you have to have a fully manned SOC. They tell you you have to monitor, you have to log, it has to go to a SOC. It doesn't say that your SOC has to be good. It doesn't say that your SOC has to be skilled. Right? So I, I try not to lean too much on the frameworks. I use them as a guidepost, um, but they are not the, the end all and, and be all um, for me. Now, one thing the CMC did do is they classified um, their suppliers. That I do, right? Some suppliers are more risky than others. So some require some level of continuous monitoring. Some need to have have a checkup more often. Some need to um, align with certain authentication controls we may have, or or they need to have some type of legal language um, in their contracts to give them another little bit of 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 a push to do the right thing from a security perspective. And you can do those things based off of risk qualifications and risk and classify your suppliers. Um, but uh, other than that, I do my best not to subscribe to a framework that I'm not forced to. I agree there. And I, I think the continuous monitoring is both a good thing and a challenge for many organizations. Um, some might be able to continuously monitor themselves, but then as you bring in now, third-party risks and monitoring their risks, um, you have to become a, a more mature organization yourself. Now you have to start to uh, ingest threat intelligence, uh, monitor threat landscape, see how, if those suppliers are attacked, how that impacts you, how that impacts your whole organization. Um, and and then even like the, the right to audit, I, I think like even the right to audit that might be in some of those legal contracts doesn't really get executed enough like it's there as a option but then no one really ever does it and i think when it comes to your your critical suppliers if that's something that gets executed more often and they know that um that might be something to consider as as an option to ensure that you're doing the right things um in addition to continuous monitoring because you're only potentially monitoring one or two feeds from them um that they're either up to date um that they're that they're patched in certain systems um but outside of that you don't have a, a view to their entire scope yeah i i agree with the the point on the right to audit the challenge with the right to audit is most people don't have the bandwidth and the team strength to be able to actually carry that out, 
the the amount of effort that it takes to carry out an audit and it not just be lip service, it's pretty intensive. And as you know, we are already at a talent deficit. If organizations were to take on the, the cost of actually carrying out audits against their suppliers, that would mean pulling away people from doing some of the other strategic things within that organization. Large banks, large Fortune 500s, not even all the Fortune 500s, um, they can afford it. Some of your large tech companies, they can afford it. But 90, if not higher percent of companies, they don't have enough personnel uh, to be able to audit their suppliers. So you mentioned Log4j and understanding that risk within the supply chain. Um, what, what are some of the techniques that an organization can use to ensure that when it comes to their software supply chain, that they fully understand everything that they're inheriting from outside companies as part of their infrastructure, as part of the applications that you're building or products that you're serving uh, to their own customers. Yeah, the word insure scares me a little bit. I work for a legal company. I've learned not to use words like insure these days. Um, but what I, what I can say is the way that you mitigate something like this is to have a full understanding of what's out there. When log4j or any other type of vulnerability comes out, you want to be able to quickly identify all instances. Before any mitigation, before any prevention, before any controls, any patching, you need to be able to say, these are the 17 cases that we need to address. And then you go and address them. In some courses, it's 1,700 cases that we need to address. And you do that a few different ways. Number one, asset management. You need to have a full inventory of all of your systems in a centralized place and all of the applications and software on those systems. WebEx is a very common product. WebEx was vulnerable. People needed to be able to see all the devices that had WebEx so that they could patch it. Elasticsearch was another common one. A lot of developers are using Elasticsearch. Elasticsearch has components for, for Log4j inside of it. You need to be able to quickly say, these are all the places where we have these different components that have Log4j. That's the first thing. Second thing, we talked about suppliers and vendors. If you do business with any vendor or supplier, any of them have come out and said, our component is vulnerable, our component is not vulnerable. You need to be able to pull up your entire list of all your suppliers and vendors very quickly, have points of contact for all of those suppliers and vendors, and be able to reach out and say, do I have an exposure because of your solution, yay or nay? <laughs> and then thirdly, for all of your developed stuff, you need an SBOM. Right, and SBOM has an inventory of all of the libraries. So many companies just didn't even know what libraries were in use, and they had to ask individual developers. They inherited applications that developers left long ago, and they didn't have you know, the in-house knowledge. If you can reference your SBOMs and you can see all the different places where those libraries are used, you're going to be in better shape when it comes to responding. Now, the actual ability to respond, that's a whole other conversation. That depends on manpower. It depends on capability. Um, it depends on what the vendors have made available to you. Um, it depends on the tooling that you have. If you have edge protections, you should be making use of your WAF. Or you should be making use of um, some of the outbound controls that you can put into your firewalls. Uh, there's a lot of different ways you can mitigate it, but it, ultimately it starts with understanding your environment. Well, you've you've mentioned at least four different topics. Um, when it comes to developing a security program that those that are looking to grow up into this type of role can take into consideration. First is understanding their application environment and an SBOM. I know when it comes to uh, software bill of materials, that's a newer concept that um, has not been implemented or you don't see as often today. And it, it is a challenge when you don't understand when someone wants to install a software on their machine um, and you have all these one-offs in the organization, what your risk is from allowing those one-off exceptions. Um, the, the, the next thing you talked about was an asset management program. A lot of companies even struggle with that. And that's like the number one CIS control is understanding what all your machines are and what's running in your environment and then developing that incident response plan for that and understanding your, your points of contacts and potentially having an offline version that everyone can look at because in the incident that you potentially have a ransomware 
or that sort of uh, incident, you might not be able to access your centralized um, list. And so coming up with th those sorts of uh, incident response plans for those responders, as well as um, legal, CISOs, uh, other department heads, having them in the conversation as well as to how you would respond in those situations, uh, developing potentially tabletop exercises or um, other practice uh, sessions throughout the year so that uh, it's fresh in their minds. Precisely. Uh, you brought up incident response. That's an interesting one to talk about because the average organization, we ask about incident response, it's how do you respond when you have an incident in your environment? There's malicious code, there's a bad actor inside of your environment, something malicious is actively happening. How do you respond? Well, in my SOC, I have a fusion center, so I combine the vulnerability team and the SOC team and AppSec team and a few other teams together in a single location. We, we also have other playbooks that are outside of just responding to an incident. Um, for the case of Log4j, we have a playbook called Celebrity Vulnerability Playbook. <laughs> and I call the celebrity vulnerabilities the ones that make the news, right? There's all kinds of vulnerabilities, but there are some that everybody knows about, like the celebrity. How do we deal with celebrity vulnerabilities? How do we communicate internally, externally? Um, and how so how do we kind of rally the troops to identify exposure and address exposure? That's a playbook in itself. And it doesn't mean anything bad has ever happened. It just means you have to identify if something bad has happened. And if you do find something, then you kick off your actual incident response playbook um, to then go address it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I think just identifying all the players that are involved in any given playbook across the organization, uh, that becomes a challenge because you have to understand the relationships, how the business really works, um, and then deciding who might have the authoritative voice in a serious incident like is it a CISO that takes charge is it whoever takes charge in a disaster situation because there could be an outage of facility there could be an outage of people there could be an out outage of access to um connectivity think those all all those different outages require a totally different response precisely so um with regards to developing um, a, uh, I'd say a hybrid environment that we're in from COVID, right? Uh, what are some of the things that you're that you're doing to attract and retain uh, talent that's either looking to to find a new role or even within your organization looking for that internal mobility? Um, what are some of your recommendations to attract and retain talent today? Uh, so from an attracting talent perspective, I'm finding that my presence on social media is attracting talent. Um, people want to work for people that they like, and some people do and some people don't like some of the things that I have to say, but for the ones that do like what I have to say, if I have a role open, they say this is somebody that I would want to work for. I, I appreciate his ideologies. I appreciate his approach to business. I appreciate his X, Y, and Z. This is someone that I want to work for. So, you know, I put out a post on LinkedIn and I get, you know, a bunch of people applying and not just entry level, but people that are mid-level as well. And they're the hardest ones to, um, to find. So I guess having, you know, some level of presence or a brand, if you will, um, can help when it comes to attracting employees. Uh, but then also, Employees today, especially the people that are experienced, they're interviewing you just as much as you're interviewing them. So it's, it's important that you lay out a career path in the interview process. It's important that you help them understand your core values and what your mission and what your strategy is and how they're going to fit um, into that. And that same thing applies to your existing people. Uh, people are ready to jump ship left and right. And in security, they're getting thrown all kinds of crazy money. So people need to feel as if they have a purpose. Um, so it's important that every single person on my team, they know their purpose. They know exactly how their role fits into our strategy. They need to know what our career path is. Here's your career path if you're an individual contributor, because you really don't ever want to manage people, but you want to be really deep in a technical subject. And here's your career path if you want to be a people manager and you want to grow through leadership and through you know shaping and molding um, the future cyber professionals of tomorrow. And giving people clear direction on how they can get from notch one to notch two on that career path is important because then they can work towards something. They don't feel like they have to leave to go and get that something. Um, that's something that I do. And I say this all the time, just 
just be a good human and care about people. Right? People want to work for someone that cares about them. I don't want to work for someone that doesn't care about me, straight up. And a happy worker is a productive worker. I believe as uh, an employee, people that are in their sweet spot doing the things that they love and they're strong at, those are satisfied employees. And the job of a leader is to put people into their sweet spot. So you mentioned some of that mid-level talent. Um, at a certain point, there's some level of leadership. Whether or not they want to manage people, they still have to understand how to guide people, how to influence people. What are some of the ways that you you help develop these? They're called soft skills, but they're they're really the hardest skills to to master. Uh, what are some of the ways that you help develop those skills? Yeah, so whenever I'm hiring somebody, soft skills are the first thing I'm looking for. I find that they're the hardest to develop. I can't teach people the things that their parents should have taught them as as kids, <laughs> right? It, they they ruin they learn them early on. I can't teach someone that is unlikable to be likable, right? So there are certain things that I look for in the interview process, head and shoulders over technical because we can teach technical. Um, I can't teach you to show up to a meeting on time. I can't teach you um, to care about the people that you work with, right? So those are the things that I'm, that I'm searching for. And how do we further develop those soft skills? Through opportunities. And like I said, through stretch assignments to demonstrate them. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, my head of identity, I tasked her with developing my executive communication for Log4j. It has nothing to do with identity, but I wanted her to get the experience of drafting an executive communication that goes to the CEO. And then after she drafted it, I worked with her to say, here's what I would change. I would do this a little bit differently. But other than that, 80% of this was good. We're gonna send it exactly as you wrote it, right? Except for these changes. That gave her experience that she otherwise would have never had. But because one day she wants to be a CISO. So I'm gonna give you an opportunity to do the things you know, uh, that a CISO may do. That does a few different things. Number one, it shows her that I believe she can get there because why would I try to develop her into something that I don't think she could become? Um, but two, it makes her want to stay because she's going to get opportunities for growth. Um, and then three, I've now developed somebody that can do something in my absence if I'm not able to do it. So it's a it's a win for, for everybody. Absolutely love that. And one of the things I'm also doing on the side is I'm an adjunct professor. And uh, this semester, um, I'm teaching a, a master's course intro into like cyber governance. And the first thing, the first announcement I send out is, hey, you are the CRO of Acme Inc. And you will be briefing the board every single week. So every written assignment that you're, they have to write about, I want them to pivot from just doing academic writing to think about things from a business perspective and create an actionable report as to what you want done um, to move this forward. Because it's one thing to just write about Log4j. It's another thing to write about Log4j and then make recommendations that people can actually use. And I, I think that difference is what highlights what you're looking for. So I, I want them to get in the habit of kind of creating those actionable reports. I think that's great. Um, being able to put together a solid business level email is not something that most schools are teaching. Most kids don't even know how to use Outlook when, when they first start, right? So there are just some basic fundamentals um, that if we can get them into people in their, in their college or even in high school, um, we're just going to be better off when they enter the workforce. You mentioned getting the, these into colleges and high schools. What are some of the things that we can do with, with regards to creating a pipeline for the future uh, to make cybersecurity a, a career that people want and not just something that they find out about by the time they're done with college so that you're interested when you're seven or eight? Because by the time you get to graduating high school, you pretty much decided what you want to do or what you don't want to do. And they might have ruled out anything technology related by that time. We need to find more ways to celebrate the cybersecurity professionals that are out there. I mean, I've said this before, but most people, when they're growing up, they're told you have to be an engineer, a lawyer or a doctor if you want to make good money. Now people might see, you know, tech entrepreneur potentially 
or maybe a social media star or whatever, right? So there are, but there's a very narrow set of career paths where you are thought to have a guaranteed good life from a financial perspective. We need to show people that there are many other ways now and IT and cyber is definitely one of those ways where you can have a, a very lucrative career um, and have a lot less school than some of those other paths um, that, that we talked about. I think that's, that's one thing. We need to find ways to get it into classes in K through 12. Uh, the earlier people find out about it, the more likely it is to be on their potential career list. People in college have made their decision in many cases um, about what they want to do, at least if it's technical or non-technical, um, and then potentially even whatever the, the field may be. So I think just the earlier we get it in there, more mentorship opportunities. I don't know if career days are a thing still, but if you have an opportunity for a career day and you're in cyber, go show people that it's an option. You don't have to be a hacker. You can be a lot of other things and still be in cyber. Absolutely. And I have a question for you. One of the things that um, I, I'm in a nonprofit called Whole Cyber Human Initiative, and we're kind of, we we're in the mindset that cyber is a trade like many other trades and creating apprenticeships are a great way to bring individuals into this because like you mentioned a lot less school um most of the learning is done on the job and you could teach someone that on the job versus going to school that focuses just on the theory and less on the hands-on applicability um would that be something that you, you you see that you can implement in your organizations or future organizations Hundred um, percent. I had internship over the last summer. Um, one of them was in college, and one of them was a single mom looking to make a change. And I, I have a, a belief, and this is just my thought, that single moms would add so much value to cybersecurity because they are by far some of the most resourceful um, people that are out there. Um, if they are a single mom, they're going to be hungry and they're going to have a desire to really be successful because. Um, they're a single mom, they have a, they have a family and, and kids to take care of. Um, <clears throat> I also think in general, we, we need more women. So yeah, create internships, create internships for niche areas potentially. Um, I am in the process right now of, instead of asking for another head, right? I'm asking for a revolving for intern um, type of deal where instead of giving me, let's just say $70,000 to hire somebody, give me, you know, 15, give me four $15,000 internships for people who work, you know, for me over a three month period. And I'll get four different people in and I'm going to still spend the same amount of money um, as I would spend on a single person, maybe even less because people that are working internships don't have benefits. Um, but we will send people off either to other organizations that have three years of solid experience that we would structure specifically so they can leave better than they came. Or I have a pipeline of four people that I can then go ahead and hire right afterwards of the two. One of them is working for us now, and the other one um, is graduating college next year, and maybe she'll come work for us as well. One of the, the past organizations that I worked for, they, they had this amazing program. And what it did is it hired on internship interns, but treated them like consultants. So they were brought in and they would go to finance, they would go to IT, they would go to all the different departments and then they would rotate around. And one of the amazing things that that did is as they got to go know the different departments, they knew who to contact, they knew who to reach out to, they built those relationships across the organization. And then once they're tasked with a project, because everyone knows that these interns are uh, something prized by the C-level suite and they're working as consultants for the C-level suite, um, they're, they're able to accomplish so much more that otherwise uh, a typical consultant might not be able to do. And you're hungry for it too, because they're, they're wanting to learn and you're wanting to demonstrate their skill all at the same time. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. We did something similar, not at the C-level, but what we did was we rotated them through cyber. So, you know, the first quarter of the time we're spending time with the Fusion Center, the second quarter is spending time with our GRC function. Next, we're spending time with identity. Next, we're spending time with architecture and engineering. 
And it was for a few reasons. One, I wanted to get exposure to all areas of cyber. Two, I wanted to potentially give each one of those leaders an opportunity to see someone they may want to hire. And three, most people want to join cyber, but don't know what they want to do in cyber. And they try to figure it out through like taking security plus training or what they see online, but they don't really know until they do it. So being able to let them immerse themselves within all areas of cyber, they get to actually select the path that they want to take and move forward in. And at the end, I let them do a presentation on the area that they like the most um, in cyber and what they learned. So. Wow. I I, I, I love that. That's like that's like an apprenticeship right there because you're figuring out the different areas, you're learning the different skills, and then you're you're kind of learning the soft skill at the same time by doing the presentation. Um, How's that? How can we um, multiply that approach and uh, spread that across other organizations? Um, Have you created like a, a case study on that and how we could try to replicate that? I haven't. I only did it once. I don't know if I can have a case study on doing it once. I may have struck gold. Not sure yet, right? Or I may have gotten lucky. Um, But no one's asking me to do a case study, so I have to think about that. Uh, um, The where I would do a case study is on my plan to have a rotating intern. Um, I find that too often we only hire interns in the summer, Mm -hmm. Um, and when you hire interns in the summer. That's only one set of students. That's students that are coming from four-year institutions. Mm-hmm. But there are students that just took certifications. There are students that went the trade route. Um, there are people that are getting back into the workforce, and they can come and do internships at any point in time. And unfortunately, they're competing with the college kids. And honestly, the college kids usually take precedence. I really am highly interested in people with prior experiences, not just the diversity of thought, but just the professionalism that they're going to come to work with, you know, starting as a 30-year-old in cyber or even a 40 or 50-year-old in cyber, they're going to bring something different to the table uh, than the person that I have to teach, you know, when to put BCC and when not to put BCC. So, um, yeah, I, I like the idea of having interns start in December, having interns start in June, having interns start in, in April. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the things that when I talk to, I've, I've been talking to a lot of military veterans because um, the whole cyber human initiatives, there's several vets in there. So we talk to a lot of them. And like you said, they want to they want to join cyber. They don't know what they want to do. So one of the things that we talk about is those skills and competencies from their former roles that they've done and how that can apply to cyber. Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen any good resources that you would recommend for uh, us to include or for them to consider with regards to doing that self-discovery and figuring out what path might be helpful for them? It's interesting that you say that. Um, so in my past, I've helped people with non-traditional backgrounds break into cyber. Um, two examples come to mind. One person was a pilot. And they had no IT experience. I, I say, hey, go get the Security Plus, and if I have an opportunity, I'll bring you on. And what I saw when I looked into his experience as a pilot and I asked questions, pilots have to have a level of situational awareness. They have to be calm under pressure. They have to be able to analyze a lot of data and make decisions very quickly. They have to be able to talk people down when they're freaking out because something has occurred. There are a lot of capabilities that a pilot brings to the table um, that a lot of cyber people don't even have. So I was able to take that experience plus him getting a security plus and say, this is the type of person that we want on our team. Number one, he went on a fast security plus with no experience, no IT at all. So that shows a level of aptitude. Um, but two, this guy was a proven pilot. He fired as a pilot. He just left the job because he wanted mm-hmm. something different. Um, and there's an opportunity there. Another person um, that I helped get into cyber uh, was working at Home Depot. And they were a customer service person. They, they moved up the ranks into various levels of management. Uh, but their job was conflict resolution more than anything else. And managers <laughs> do a lot of those stores. And if I can't tell you that conflict resolution is tied to our job, then I don't know what it is, right? Customer service, making people happy, making people want to come to you and talk to you. Uh, part of the problem with security is, is people swerve and try to go around us and avoid us because they don't like us. They don't like how we operate. They don't like us saying no all the time, right? So finding someone that knows how to communicate with people and knows how to reach people where they are, 
Now you just got to give them the cyber content to, to lead with that. And you have someone that could be really good in the GRC type of role, potentially, or even someone that could eventually become, you know, a security awareness or BISO. The list goes on and on. I'm currently working with a teacher um, that wants to move in, and she has all these ideas on how to reach people verbally and using, you know, different uh, kinetic types of trainings and so forth, things that they are taught. They are taught how to reach little people with small brains imagine what they could do with big people with big <laughs> brains, right um and the patience that they have right so i i um i haven't done it in a while but i was running a small little resume service called look at people's resumes give them tips and pointers and and help them kind of take their non-traditional background and apply it to a security background i, I absolutely love that i i know one of the things that uh, i was helping someone with is there did a lot of people don't know how to write about themselves um mm. they, they could write all the things that they've done but they don't know how to convert that into actionable results or something that would show hey i'm a problem solver or hey i could deal with conflict resolution look at a situation that i did this is what i did um did to resolve that situation and these were the results they, they they don't think to write like that they're like oh yeah just customer management or they, they write like the plain task what are some of the ways that you think individuals can include that value in their resume you know i think this one is preference because i've seen a lot of different theory on how a resume should be written i think there are you know three core things to having a, a good resume the first thing is you need to have three to five sentences at the very beginning that makes me want to read down further. And it can't be loyal, hardworking, experienced. Nobody cares about any of that. Tell me something that's real and authentic about you that maybe will make you different from other candidates that I see. That's the first thing. The second thing is look at all of the job descriptions that you're going to be submitting this resume for and identify the top 10 to 15 keywords that are common amongst all of them. Because a lot of these job search um, and, and recruiters, they're scanning for certain keywords. So if you don't have the word cyber anywhere on your resume, I had a guy who's coming out of IT and he was trying to move into IT. He didn't have the word cyber anywhere on his resume. He had the word security anywhere on his resume. He's like, I could do it. He's like, but I, that wasn't my job. Like, you know, if you were the director of IT, you had some level of security responsibility. You need those words on your resume to even, you know, trip the radar. So that's the the second thing that I would say. And then the third thing is only put the relevant experiences for the job that you're going after. And it can't be managed people, right? It, it can't be ran patch team no you know grew patch team from x to x uh cut patch uh window down from you know 14 days to, to seven days implemented x y and z type of patching strategy you, you you have to give the reader an impression of what you're going to do for them not just managed the patching team um those are some of the tips um, that i would give the latter only matters if the first two things are done if you don't have a good catchy or a good you know initial comment about yeah. yourself and you don't trip the keywords nobody will see anything else so speaking of not being able to trip the keywords what's your view on networking hmm. <clears throat> um number one part of getting a job today 100 percent um uh, I don't want to reference posts that I've had, but the reality <laughs> is, is I am a strong believer that uh, who you know is far more than what you know in today's climate. And who you know is truly based off of the relationships that you've had, but more importantly, the relationships that you've fostered and maintained. There are people that I worked with 10 years ago that I haven't talked to in 10 years. I, I'm not comfortable going to them and saying, hey, can you get me the job at this company that you have at your, at your company? But if I've communicated with people, saw them, whatever it may be, I'm, I'm far more comfortable with that. Um, and I can tell you that whenever I have a job opening, if someone I know places a resume in front of me, I'm far more likely to look at it than anything one of the recruiters um, are going to bring to me. Because if someone brings it to me, it tells me at the very least they're willing to put their neck out on the line for this person. So I go back to the very basics. 
they're going to show up to meetings on time. You cannot find that in an interview. You will never know in an interview if someone's going to show up to a meeting on time. You'll never know, right? And something as small as that is a huge difference in hiring the smartest, greatest person, but then they turn out to be just mean or they turn out to just be undependable or, or whatever it is. So we can kind of weed out those types of people by leveraging a relationship and, and a referral. And talking about building and maintaining those relationships in a world where we might have less physical events, what are some of the ways that, that you build your brand or continue to build those relationships in a virtual environment? I'm just helpful whenever somebody needs help. Um, I I rarely ignore a message. I miss some at times because I get so many. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I respond. Just be kind. Um, put your real self out there. I'm unapologetically authentic for a few reasons. There are things that are, this is the way Jared does things. I'm a millennial. I think like a millennial. And so I'm going to approach things like a millennial. If you don't like that, I want you to know ahead of time. I don't want you to come on board and be like, oh my gosh, this millennial guy is trying mm -hmm. to have short meetings. And this millennial guy is trying to have frequent check-ins and not just once a year check-ins, or he's offering me more PTO. What I really want is more whatever authority. I don't yeah. know, right? I just want people to know like, this is the guy that, that I'm coming to work for. And if, you, if I like it, let's go for it. And if I don't like it, there's plenty of other companies that are gonna manage and do things a little bit differently. Um, so for me, that's, that's really important. Um, and then yeah, just reaching out to people, you know, for the relationships that really matter most to you. If you have, you know, thousands and thousands of connections, you can't do that with the thousands, but for the ones that really matter, make sure that they know that you're on their radar. Yeah, absolutely. One, one of the things that I tried to do was, um, comment on their posts or their threads but come out with something helpful. Um, if you're looking for reach, help them with reach, uh, but also be a connector of people. I think um, when, say, you're looking for this, you have this problem and I know someone else that can help you solve that problem by connecting two other people together, um, that also builds relationships because now you know three people and you connected some and there's some built-in value there as well absolutely um there are so many ways that you can kind of get your name out there and that you can keep your name um on people's minds putting posts that are relevant resharing things that that should be reshared adding value ultimately my job and my mission is to add value to people's lives. And I'm trying to do that using the platform that I have, happens to be LinkedIn. And the way I approach it is I am trying to democratize leadership strategies. I don't want all the strategies that are in my head to go away with me when I go away one day. I want it to all be out there on paper and video and podcast form. And I want people years from now to be able to learn from those, benefit from those and expand on those, right? I am built on the top of leaders before me there's an ancient um, quote, I can't remember who it's attributed to, but it's uh, it says, when you're eating fruit, don't forget the person that planted the tree, right? And I keep those types of uh, things in mind because I wanna constantly, constantly just make people's lives better. And, and when you do that, sometimes you don't have to maintain that relationship. People wanna maintain that relationship with you because they see you helping them um, in many ways. and I think that's the next level when you don't have to try hard and people are actually trying to, to do it themselves. But yeah, just work your way up to that and start by being a good person and just trying to help one person at a time. Wow. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And um, that's that's the foundation of this podcast is when I was coming up, I had so many folks help me throughout my journey that I wanted to find a way to scale my help and I chose podcasting and live streams, LinkedIn uh, as the ways to do it. Um, one of the comments we have from Will S. Uh, Thanks, Jared and Chris. Really interesting discussion. Some good classics covered here that should help folks breaking into to understand the concerns of potential employers, compliance versus security, business CISO versus technical CISO, 
third-party risk, supply chain management, and of course, log for shell and the impl implications of such celebrity vulnerability events. Um, fantastic formats, philosophies, beliefs, initiatives, great stuff. And I mean, that that's the reason. Absolutely, and thank you for coming on. Like, um, that's the reason that we have these podcasts is, is to share that information. And I, I love the idea of the celebrity vulnerability. Um, I'm going to take that because I mean, nine months ago we had uh, Solar Winds, and that was all rage. Now we have Log for Shell, and I mean, before that there was Meltdown, and there's Spectre, and you name it. So calling it a celebrity vulnerability is definitely um, a great playbook to have. Um, we're coming to the end of the program. And one, one of the things that I love to do is um, if you had like to summarize everything into one piece of sage advice for someone following in your footsteps, how, how would you do that? And what that, what might that be? The hard question. Uh, <laughs> man, that is... That is tough. I guess the easy answer is follow me. I got a bunch more of this, but no, um, no, seriously. Uh, what I would say is read, read and read a lot. I, people ask me, I'm, I'm 35 years old. Right. And that is, that is not very old in the grand scheme of things, but I have the experience of someone that's 150 because I've read the books of people that have lived lives three times my life. Before I had actual mentors in the physical sense, my mentors were all the different books that I read. I now listen to podcasts, I consume YouTube videos and so forth, but I still stick with the books. I have books behind me. Every single one of them have shaped who I am, my philosophies, my ideologies. And uh, the more you read, the smarter you will become. Um, and if you stop reading, you are just going to limit the amount of uh, information uh, that you can have. And uh, there's, one more thing I would say on that is um, people are drowning in information and they're starving for knowledge. When you have knowledge, share it. Keeping it in is one of the most selfish things that you can do because people will benefit from it and you have no idea how many lives you are touching. You have no idea how many generations you are affecting simply by just giving a small little piece of knowledge. Wow. Uh, D David says, excellent comment, read a lot, knowledge is amazing. And one of the things for me as um, both a leader uh, and a coach is for individuals to figure out the best format for them, right? Um, you might be a physical person, you like to sit back and read those physical books. For me, I'm an auditory person. So I have a million, well, probably several hundred books in my um, Audible library. And I listen to podcasts all the time because for me, listening to it, I, I can ingest it and I can ingest it at like triple the speed. Um, but yeah, that, that's just my approach. Others, they like to see video like like this one on YouTube. They, they have to see the interactions. They have to see how it's done. And then others, they have to actually do it. Um, yeah. so, some can hear the steps and figure out how it all works. Others, they really have to practice it four or five times to be able to to get it done. So um, yeah, I, I, knowledge is always amazing. And then we have a, a comment over here from Bill. Uh, Jared, how, how have you been? <laughs> so, Not as good as you since you lost you're following Tom. Us here. <laughs> Not as good as you since you lost Tom. That's how. Uh, <laughs> great insights today. Uh, thank you for sharing. A any books that you would recommend? Uh, there's so many, um, you know, I, I, I share the same one and I probably should come up with a new one eventually, uh, but there's a book behind me. It's called The Mama Mentality by Kobe Bryant. He's a basketball guy, but ultimately it talks about how to pursue your passion and to pr pursue that passion with 100% of you and um, security. You will not succeed if you're not passionate in security. You are going to have late Friday nights. You are going to have things like Log4J that take you away from your family around the holidays. You are going to have to learn on a regular basis. <laughs> and if you don't have a passion for it, you're going to give it up and you're going to burn out. Uh, the passion that I have for security, which is why I've done it my entire career, got my bachelor's and master's in it, every single job I've had, it's what's kept me going. It's what's helped me propel. 
Um, so that book helped me with that. And the, another one is The Speed of Trust by Stephen Covey. Um, ultimately, as a leader in security, you need to develop trust. And if people don't trust you, they won't follow you. Uh, I, I love Stephen Covey's books, um, The Habits, and those have changed my life. And that I, I've seen some amazing podcasts with um, Kobe, just the, the determination that he has in 100%. training for his passion. And it was amazing the other things outside of sports that that you don't that you don't see. Um, but it looks like um, Bill has some comments for you. <laughs> oh man! So, uh, <laughs> well, uh, I want to you're going to get with Santa's leaving you. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so All much right, for your Chris. time today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, happy to come on any other time. Um, but I, I want to say, like, uh, this has been such a great conversation. Um, share it with folks. If you're listening on YouTube, share the link, reshare the link. Uh, if you're listening on podcasts, share it with others so that they could, they could get interested as well. And follow us on LinkedIn, if and then you can get some more amazing advice uh, every time you post. All right, but thanks, thanks everyone, guys. and have a, have a great day, Chris. Thank you.